Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning. All right, so I am, uh, I'm kind of excited today. Today is my 10th anniversary. Now, for those of you who have had lots and lots and lots of anniversaries, you're saying to yourself, you know, 10 isn't that, isn't that many. Um, for those of us for whom, like, 10 is the most we've ever had, 10 is a lot. So um, celebrating my husband today, celebrating the joy of, uh, of marriage today. Yes, I recognize that uh, today is also uh, the Friday before Mother's Day, so I am certainly celebrating my mom, um, celebrating moms uh, of every variety today. And so be mindful of that in the next couple of days as well. Be sure to, you know, wish people who are raising kids of any variety through any kind of relationship or family system, you know, be thankful for them. Uh, Be thankful for our spiritual moms as we move into this weekend. I am tremendously thankful for Kathy Connor. She's not actually old enough to be my mom, like by any stretch, but she's a spiritual mom to me in really, really significant ways, as is Camille McCorder, who is the mom of my dear dear friend John from high school. Uh, So there are people who shepherd our hearts as spiritual moms along the way, and that doesn't take anything away from, you know, my mom mom, Ruth Ann, or her mom, Robina, who I celebrate uh, deeply and love with great affection, uh, recognizing that I get to spend eternity with my grandmother, Robina, who is in many, many ways my, uh, my spiritual grandmother. And and I'm going to do so as a sister in Christ. Like, how cool is that? That's just so cool. I am both uh, granddaughter and spiritual daughter and sister in Christ to my grandmother, Robina. I I just love that. Uh, thank you to Kathy, who on the zip line uh, or on our, it's our text line. It's called Zip Whip. So anyway, uh, but um, so on the text line, she says, well, I celebrate you. Well, thank you. That is so great. I love gathering with you here each and every day. It is such a privilege and delights my heart. So thank you, thank you, thank you for including me in your day today. We have a great couple of hours planned ahead. Uh, First up is Matthew Hawkins. He joins us um, frequently. We talk through the headlines of the day. We focus a lot on life headlines, religious liberty headlines. And today we're going to lead off with the headline, Related to refugees, President Biden has raised the refugee ceiling. Faith-based groups are working very, very quickly to rebuild the infrastructure that is going to be necessary to receive refugees from around the world. Um, And that's probably going to be happening in your community as well. So Matt Hawkins and I are going to talk about that in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen.
Matthew Hawkins joins me now. You can find him at MatthewTHawkins.com. You can also find him on Twitter at MTHawk. Hey, welcome back, my friend. Happy Mother's Day, Carmen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay. Happy Mother's Day to my mother. Oh, my mother, Jean yeah, Hawkins. Get it all out, Fort man. Myers, get it, list, them, list them all out. <laughs> and have, happy Mother's Day to Crystal Hawkins, my wife, who also had oh, Nurses Day this week. That was yesterday. <gasps> so uh, it's a big deal. Yeah. Big week. It's so exciting. It is a big week. It is a big <laughs> week. Um, okay. So that you don't get into trouble, um, you better say Happy Mother's Day to her mom as well. Of course. And Happy Mother's Day to Betty. Hey, Betty. I know. Betty's close <laughs> at hand. Is she not? She is. She's near me. Yeah. They're all the all my uh wife and uh, sister-in-law and mother-in-law are all on a Mother's Day weekend away uh at the Biltmore <gasps> in North Carolina this oh, weekend. So they're they're so having they're fun. A, a fun girls. Oh, so, that is so fun. Yeah. Well, well, hooray and hats off to you and all of the uh all of the men that uh will now be doing double duty in many many ways um <laughs> while those women are away. So that's really cool. Okay, let's talk about um the the raising of the refugee ceiling. Yes. We're talking here about people around the world who literally cannot uh, go back to the places um, from which they have come because of uh, of disaster or political reasons. They literally cannot return. Um, talk with us yeah. about the significance of raising the uh, refugee limit. Yeah. So the Biden administration this week uh, announced that they were going to raise the existing uh, limit on um, resettled refugees to the U.S., from 15,000 to up, upwards of 62,000, um, which uh, is there's a number of way to look at that number of ways to look at that. But the good news, basically, this is good news for uh, refugees. Um, the Biden administration does have some work to do uh, to basically ramp up um, the refugee resettlement program here in the U.S. after the Trump administration um, reduced it significantly um, from previous years down to to the 15,000 mark. Now, the Biden administration admits they probably will not hit 62,000 uh, refugee admissions this year um, just on a capacity thing and, and for the remainder of the fiscal year is. But they are trying and they are increasing the numbers. Um, and I think it's important to uh, kind of tell a little bit of the backstory, if you don't mind, for the past mm -hmm. six years of uh, of uh, the refugee resettlement program. Uh, number one, up until uh, I would say uh, the fall of 2015, the refugee resettlement thing was not a political issue. Um, it was certainly not a partisan, a partisan issue. It was just a thing that Americans did uh, in, in very good ways and very productive ways. And it was something that faith communities across the U.S. really highly participate in. Um, because uh, refugees basically get hosts who help them uh, acclimate to the new to their new country and help them uh, do you know language training and develop job skills and just get them used to life in America. Uh, that those efforts are led heavily by uh, by faith groups and largely Christian and Catholic and I mean Protestant and Christian or Protestant and Catholic faith groups, including World Relief. Um, at the height uh, during the Obama administration, the America America was taking in about a hundred thousand refugees per year. That sounds like a lot, um, but keep in mind refugees are the most heavily screened 
uh, people that we admit into the country. It's by no question. Uh, refugee screening takes months and months, if not years in many cases. And so by the time a refugee comes here to the U.S., they have been more heavily screened than anybody entering the country. And refugees, uh, by definition, do not um, get resettled um, until after all of that screening process has been done. They don't come, they don't set foot on uh, U.S. soil until after that screening process is done. So one of the things that uh, folks forget about is we've kind of conflated and we've confused refugee resettlement with uh, migrant uh, border crossings or illegal border crossings um, and people who are also seeking asylum. So asylum, people who seek asylum basically already show up here at the border or, uh, or in country and then they declare you know, they're seeking asylum. So functionally similar, right? Similar motivations for uh, but uh, practically speaking, very different um, process. And one of the things that was really sad about um, the reduction of refugee resettlement here from around 100,000 a year in the Obama administration way down to 15,000 is that it didn't really, it doesn't really do anything um, to increase our security. Um, mm -hmm. Why is that? Now, people of goodwill um, and, and can, can argue in good faith and debate about how to, you know, uh, reform, you know, reform and upgrade uh, refugee screening processes. There's always things you could do to make those kind of processes better and, and more secure. Um, but number one, um, we admit on business and tourist visas every year, seven to eight million people who go completely unscreened. In this country, so seven to eight million people enter this country each year uh, when you're not in a pandemic, you know, outside pandemic years, um, mm -hmm. uh, that are go that enter this country without any screening, um, and um, that's those are the the business and tourist visas, and I think you know, fiance visas and education visas. Education, um, yeah, I mean, and then people overstay those, and we don't yeah. have any. I mean, we don't really we don't know who they are. We don't know where they've gone or right. what they're doing. So. Yeah, yeah, we so um, seven, Matt, we seven, have had Matthew Sorens. Yeah, we have had Matthew Sorens yeah. on on a number of occasions to talk about um, the process that refugees go through um, in yeah. terms of their vetting, and it is really extreme intense. and it's long term. And these are, uh, you know, as you have said, the most highly vetted um, entrants into our country from from anywhere at any point in time. So um, I want to um, I want to just remind people that this is different than what's going on at the southern border. We are talking about uh, refugees from around the globe and we're talking about um, increasing the number of refugees re that who will we resettle here in the United States. And I want people to be prepared to be um, welcoming and hospitable and integrate these uh, these yeah. friends from around the globe as new neighbors. Um, many of them are Christians and they will need, um, you know, they will need hospitality uh, from churches as well. So for sure. um, this isn't this is really an opportunity for Christians, I think, to step up and step out and recognize that people in desperate need are not um, political issues. They are people in desperate need. And so yep. um, this, this seems to me an opportunity um, to be to be gracious and welcoming. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I, I would encourage people to get in touch with folks like Matthew and 
Sorens uh, at Look for World Relief, and they are really helpful about helping you and your church uh, participate in welcoming refugees uh, to this nation. And uh, churches have been really, really enriched uh, by by that process, I think. Yeah, worldrelief.org. All right, Matt Hawkins and I will be right back. Mother knows best. All right, Matt Hawkins and I return to our uh, conversation here. We're going to pivot topics now a little bit, and we're going to talk about the state of religious freedom around the world. Uh, Matt, what are we? What are we observing? What do we know? And what maybe concerns you most? Yeah, so some people are paying attention to a report out recently from uh, an organization called Aid to the Church in Need International, and uh, one of many uh, reports from. Uh, Uh, nonprofit organizations who are monitoring religious freedom worldwide uh, and uh, just figured it would be a good opportunity to talk about this, particularly related to the refugee thing, Um, refugee crises, uh, people who are displaced, that that has implications for religious freedom, but is not always uh, directly connected. Um, But as the U.S. uh, takes on, you know, pivots with the Biden administration um, and, uh, you know, does different things with our foreign policy, uh, whether you agree with them or not. Uh, it's it's a new day. We're a quarter into the uh, first year of the president's uh, administration. And so um, people naturally uh, are trying to get a handle um, and uh, encourage the new administration to engage whatever the issue is important to them. And uh, naturally to a lot of us, uh, religious freedom is a big deal. And uh, along with kind of a heightened uh, situation with refugees and displaced people, uh, you have lots of crises with religious freedom around the world. Um, and two places in particular are China, uh, which is has been pretty terrible for a long time. But uh, the plight of the Uyghur uh, Muslim Uyghurs uh, has been uh, more um, publicized in in recent months and last year or so, uh, in that you really have kind of a slow burn genocide going on over there. I mean, China, the Chinese uh, Communist Party is really trying to erase uh, an entire people group. They're not doing it through mass executions, but they're doing it through re-education camps and uh, often forced abortions. And they're really trying to uh, er- erase uh, a people group and a, and a history of a people there, uh, which which is a, is a kind of genocide. Uh, now, it's very high tech and it's not, like I said, it's not mass executions, but uh, it's not in the long game. It's not all that different when you're trying to free, you know, forcibly uh, race people's uh, religion and their uh, cultural practices uh, to try to make them one with within the dominant uh, uh, expression of, of whatever China, whatever the communist Chinese government uh, thinks the Chinese identity should be. And uh, anyone who's looked at that culture knows that it's extremely diverse, um, natu- you know, kind of naturally speaking, uh, both in, in culture and ethnicities, um, and uh, this continued drumbeat of trying to force this kind of one China kind of thing on on that vast, vast nation uh, is it's would be ridiculous if it wasn't so um, scary and so um, so you know so terrible and such an abuse of human rights. Um, and then India uh, has been uh, it's a little more. It's not quite as bad as China, uh, but they've been uh, resituating their religion laws and uh, minority groups 
um, including Christians, but also Baha'is um, and other and other uh, and Jehovah's Witnesses are facing uh, increased discrimination. Um, and basically, it's they're not showing up as official religions um, that people are able to um, uh, kind of declare or, or prescribe. I mean, this is it's a foreign concept to Americans where we have to kind of like have on an ID card our particular religion, right? But this is standard operating procedure for a lot of nations uh, outside the West. And so um, as uh, the U.S. kind of pivots and, and looks into new foreign policies, we're just trying to remind uh, the administration, as we always have, um, and advocating through government bodies like the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, and uh, hopefully, you know, Biden will appoint uh, an ambassador at large for relig- international religious freedom soon. Uh, we do have dedicated government agencies um, uh, in- intended to do that, but they don't really make a difference unless the the president himself um, and this, you know, and the Secretary of State really make it a priority in their diplomacy. And so we're going to be monitoring, uh, continuing to watch the Biden administration to see how they uh, decide to include religious freedom, uh, internationally speaking, in their diplomacy. It's always a heavy lift, regardless of the administration. Uh, it's really hard to do, which is why Congress uh, codified these things, those mechanisms into law to try to encourage um, the administration to include religious freedom as a really big deal as they embark on diplomacy. What are you seeing? Um, well, this, okay, let me let me ask here? one follow up question. So, is Sam mm-hmm. Brownback no longer the um, the ambassador for international religious freedom? Um, is, is he well, not in each, that position in, anymore? Uh, I thought he was well, not I just usually ambassador. No, I mean, I just don't know. Like, right? Okay. Okay. Well, no, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know the answer <laughs> to that question. So when you said, you know, we're waiting for the appointment of a new one, I'm like, well, maybe he, maybe he's not in that position anymore, and I have kind of lost track of that. So I just confess that I'll do my, I'll do some homework on that. Right. Um, when <laughs> um, by next week. <laughs> well, I'm just saying. I mean, no. I mean, I, yeah. So. Um, because I really, really like him. Maybe I should just say it that way. I really like him, and he'd be really good. And if Biden's looking for one, just go ahead and, and appoint him again. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Continuity he did a great be, job. Be pretty fantastic. Yeah, continuity would be pretty fantastic. Uh, Sam's really good at that job. Uh, typically, there's a changeover in administrations uh, when when that happens. So um, yeah, well, and we'll, I guess we'll I was just thinking this is like one of those areas where you know, again, harkening uh, back to the conversation we had about refugees, it'd be really nice if this were not a political football. I mean, it would be right. really, really nice if when we talk about international religious freedom um, and this deep concern that we have for people of faith and people of no faith all over the world, yeah. um, that that America could be one of those places where we're able to say through continuity of at least that position um, that, yeah. hey, this is not a political football for us. Like we recognize that this is yeah. an ongoing concern around the globe all the time. Um, you know, even as America every four or eight years makes very significant uh, transitions yeah. in terms yeah. of her own conversations related to these things. Um, I I am always curious about the, the difference in the way we have conversations about international religious liberty and the way we have conversations here at home. Um, and I think that's uh, that's a conversation that folks can have right where they are. We enjoy such liberty here that it's almost Yes. Impossible for us to imagine um, yeah. that people around the world are not free to 
you know, to to change their faith. They're not allowed to convert. They're not allowed to go to Christian services in some places. Um, to to own a Bible is uh, is in some places yeah. around the world something that will uh, cost you not only. Um, you know, maybe a life of internment in in a hard labor camp, but may cost you your life, and yeah. um, and certainly the the social uh, credibility that you need to operate freely in society. I just um, it's it's really hard for people in the U.S. to imagine what it's like to right. to live in a place where because you're a Christian, um, you can't. You cannot work in certain places. You cannot live in certain places. You do not have access to government services, um, and you don't even necessarily have the protection of the police. Like people could come and yeah. take your kid. I mean, it's just it's yeah. it, it's well, really can, they really can hard. Come and raid your, they can come and raid your place of worship for uh, books, materials, or your even even your homes. Uh, on on the mild end of things, uh, that's that's yeah. that's what happens. So I agree. Uh, in the context of relig- international religious freedom, I think Christians, uh, whatever our debates and um, and kind of political fights over religious freedom are here, uh, it's it's a lot lot worse. And uh, religious freedom has always been hard fought, um, and we can do it here. Uh, there are always challenges to religious freedom here. It feels like like it's uh, kind of really burdensome here. Um, but we have a really great history at the Supreme Court right now. We have like mm-hmm. something like 15 consecutive wins uh, in, at the Supreme Court. And that's even before uh, Trump's administration uh, uh, appointed new um, new justices. Um, we have, you know, the freedom of speech. We have um, uh, you know, right of redress. We get to vote. Um, so whatever our periodic challenges is on domestic religious freedom, uh, you're right, it's far, far dire uh, overseas and a whole lot of places. Yeah. Thank you, Matt, um, so much for, you know, paying attention to stuff and, and highlighting it for us and doing so in a way that uh, that honors Jesus. We, uh, we appreciate your viewpoint and your participation in the conversation. Thank you. Always, always yeah. delight to be here. Happy Mother's Day once again. Thanks. You too. All right. You guys can find Matt at MatthewTHawkins.com. We'll be right back. like 50 articles on my list of leftovers today um, because there's just no way that there is time enough to talk through all of the headlines related to the Christian worldview. But we're going to unpack a handful of them with Dan DeWitt. You know him from the Weekend Worldview Reader at Theolatte.com. So grab a cup of coffee. Dan DeWitt is up next. We'll be right back. Bullies have always been a part of playground politics. Most likely you remember a few of those tangles out on the schoolyard. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Though we'll always find a handful of mean-spirited kids in class, the bullies today are using new weapons. The internet, texting, blogs, and Facebook all provide creative new ways to beat up on others verbally for all to see. As parents, we need to be aware of the damage inflicted by these digital bullies and step in to stop it whenever we can. Go the extra mile to protect your kids. Or if the bully actually lives under your roof, take away the tools of the trade. Just because bullies look different doesn't mean they're any less dangerous. Looking to make positive changes in your family? Check out the helpful resources from Mark Gregston online at parentingtodaysteens.org. 
Dan DeWitt joins me now. I love to talk with him about what he is posting at Theolatte.com. We like to turn to the Weekend Worldview Reader uh, on Fridays. So, Dan, take us into this week's Weekend Worldview Reader, which leads off with three pieces um, that you've written. Yes. Good morning, Carmen. And I heard it's your anniversary. (laughs) It is. In fact, at the uh, at the opening of the next hour, Jim is going to be my guest, which that is, is awesome. He's never been on the show. He's not. Um, yeah, he's he might be a little bit. Uh, yeah. Hesitant. But I have assured him that the audience is lovely. Yes. Yes. Well, happy anniversary to you and Jim. And it's good to join you to talk about the Weekend Worldview Reader Um, So I do have a few pieces uh, that I wrote at the beginning of the Weekend Worldview Reader, Um, The Trinity and Reality. It's going to be a part of a series, probably four or five posts, about what the Trinity, the doctrine of the Triune God, helps make sense of for me. I have another post about if Marvel can, why can't we? And I talk about the most recent Marvel series, um, The Winter Soldier and The Falcon, and how they tackle really difficult racial issues in the middle of epic battle scenes. If they can handle that much going on, um, Christians perhaps can can as well. And then finally, I have Towards the Theology of Science, which is a lecture that I give to my students at the end of every semester. It's I just gave it. It's the end of the semester here, and it's my final lecture in my theology class. I have a handful of articles that I point to by other people, and um, then I have a book and a video. So there's plenty there to keep you busy this weekend. Yeah, so let's um, let's lead off with this Toward a Theology of Science. Um, so why, why this, why do you wrap up your semester, um, this way? Uh, and what do we need to know? What do we need to know from this lecture? Yeah. So the, the reason I end the semester this way, you know, 97%, 98% of the students at Cedarville, um, are going into things other than Christian ministry. And so sometimes I've friends who assume, yeah, I'm at Cedarville, this, you know, it's known for um, the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, our our mission statement, which is taken from Scripture, that people will assume, you know, everybody here is kind of Bible majors, and it's really not the case. Only about 2% of our students are planning to be in vocational ministry. So the vast majority of them are going to be in engineering, in biology, in, um, you know, education, social work, psychology, etc. And so a lot of them are thinking through, how can I as a Christian, approach the hard sciences. And many of them are going to be involved in that, and all of them are going to be involved in the conversation. And so in my class, I teach three major doctrinal families. The name of the class is Theology One. I teach uh, between three and 400 students in that in those sections throughout a year. Um, I, I begin the class by teaching on the doctrine of Scripture, then we go through the doctrine of God, and then the doctrine of creation. So that's the final thing we talk about is what's the Bible say about creation. And I end that series, um, and I end the class, with how do Christians approach the study of creation? How do we approach science? And so it's important for Christians to think through, and it's also important for us to think about our commitments to to Scripture and how that relates. So in a nutshell, um, I, I give them seven kind of summary statements about a Christian view of science that I hope will set the parameters for how they consider science. So um, at my dinner table 
uh, last week, <clears throat> one of your former students um, was trying to help me understand chromatin immunoprecipitation sequencing, which is the research she's doing um, at Vanderbilt. Wow. And so let me just go ahead and say that Cedarville is producing some smarty pants girls. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what I have to say about that. And yeah. and she um, she is fully uh, equipped in terms of Christian worldview. And, you know, God now has her deployed in a research field where I have to imagine, you know, there's not a lot of Christians. And so um, I just, I'm, I'm excited and I'm appreciative. And science, uh, our understanding of, um, of science and that it's not in con- open conflict with theology is just so important. It, it is. And I, I think that a lot of students just expect that they're always going to be kind of in a position of weakness as a Christian when it comes to scientific challenges. And what I tell them in this lecture, one of the main points is that, you know, God has revealed himself in two books, the book of Scripture and the book of nature. And so we have to recognize that we're not going to learn new things about God's character from nature, but the Bible does say that the heavens declare the glory of God. So I'm not going to learn the Trinity through looking at a tree, um, but I, I can learn what God had, as, as Kepler, a famous scientist, said, doing science is thinking God's thoughts after him. And so as we mm-hmm. make scientific discoveries, like, oh, that's what God had in mind. And so I encourage my students where there seems to be conflict between the two, both books have to be interpreted. Sci- nature has to be interpreted. That's what science is trying to do. And the Bible has to be interpreted. And so it could be that the conflict is a result of us having a wrong understanding of the Bible, and that's happened before, or having a wrong understanding of nature, and that happens all the time, or having a wrong understanding of both. And so we have to recognize that there's an authority given to the objective Word of God, but where there seems to be conflict, we want to take a step back and say, I believe the Bible, and I need to try and make sense of this. In the final analysis, when all the facts are fully known and properly understood, there will be zero conflict between what God has revealed about himself in these two books. So good. All right, you guys can read more about that at theolatte.com. Um, it is the lead post in today's uh, Weekend Worldview Reader toward a Theology of Science. All right, brief us in, um, Dan, on um, on the Marvel one, because I, I know you just you touched on it at the open, but say yeah. a little bit more about this, because I think that in terms of conversations that, you know, people can like really engage in, man, if you can work Winter Soldier, uh, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier into a conversation today, you know, like you're doing good work as a Christian. <laughs> you know, that that's right. And I think that unfortunately, we're in, in a time in the life of the church where um, sometimes the most polarizing and extreme voices are what gets heard on issues. And so you either have people who are perhaps ready to jettison biblical authority because of issues related to race, um, or you have people on the other extreme who are um, ready to call anyone a liberal who cares about racial diversity. But the reality is most Christians who are in active community in the context of a faithful Bible-preaching church have much more nuance than those extremes. And so the reason I brought out the, the Marvel episode or series is that they handle the the complexities of an African-American man taking on Captain America's shield because of the history of America. 
And they're able to do that in the middle of these epic fight scenes. Um, they're able to have these kind of complexities and nuances and deal with sensitive issues. And if they can, then certainly Christians can. You know, we could chew gum and walk at the same time. So to care about racial unity, to care about injustice, um, we could care about those things and care about truth. And in fact, it's because we care about truth that we care about justice. And so Christians need to be committed to that conversation and need not immediately assume just because we're talking about racial reconciliation that somehow we no longer hold a biblical authority. Just the opposite. It's biblical authority that forces us into difficult conversations. I heard a conversation yesterday on NPR, and it was about the um, Turner Classic Movies Reframed Project, you know, looking back at at old beloved movies, but looking at them like through a current contra- uh, cultural context and like having a conversation like what what do what would we now say about the way that these particular characters or this storyline um, is presented and um, and not in an attempt to, you know, undo the film, but to understand it through you know, a current cultural lens. Christians do that Mm -hmm. all the time. Like we're always looking at things through a Christian worldview and a Christian lens. And I thought of you and I thought this would be a good project for Dan DeWitt to, Hmm. um, to help us better understand as well. Like what are the movies that when we go back and we look at them, we look at the way that Christians were, um, presented, represented, misrepresented, how, you know, Mm -hmm. it's an, it is an interesting conversation to have in terms of where we are today, um, you know, in, in culture as well. So you, you have me thinking all the time, which I totally appreciate. All right. Dan DeWitt and I will return to this conversation in just a moment. We're going to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to talk about a piece from Scientific America, Religion Both Helped and Hurt During the Pandemic. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. There ought to be a hall of fame for All right, hopefully you've noticed all of our bumper music today is in honor of Mother's Day. Oh, it won't all be that. Don't worry. (laughs) Well, Paul is always, like, subconsciously helping us uh, remember that there are things that we need to do. If you haven't sent her a card yet, you need to do so, but you probably need to send it today. And if you haven't sent flowers, um, like, get on it because, you know, time is of the essence and short. I delivered my mom five hanging fern baskets last weekend, so I'm good. I'm covered. But there you go. If you're not on it yet, uh, time is time is short. Dan DeWitt and I continuing our conversation about what is posted in this week's uh, Weekend Worldview Reader, which you can find at Theolatte.com. Dan, um, let's talk about this Scientific American uh, article, this piece entitled Religion Both Helped and Hurt During the Pandemic. It was good on balance for people's mental health, but not so good for physical health. Yeah, Um I think that this piece points out kind of what a lot of people have observed, that being involved in the relationships and the social connections of a faith community is is good for people. It's good for people's mental well-being. And even though, you know, as the Gallup poll pointed out, you know, a month ago, that church affiliation is, you know, for the first time ever dropped below 50 percent, we, we know that it's for people who are connected to faith communities, it's it's good for their their mental well-being. However, um, churches have also been a place where um, COVID has spread. And so you have both. It's good for their mental well-being, but in close proximity, singing together, the often that there's where that the spread happens. And so this article points to those kind of 
two realities that if we fully isolate ourselves and have no contact with real people beyond a digital screen, it's going to hurt our mental well-being. But there is a real physical risk, and churches are in a difficult spot. So I don't want to throw stones at pastors or ministry leaders. Uh, I think it's summarized well, and I heard one leader say that a person left their church saying, Walmart cares more about me than you do, because their church didn't require masks. Well, the reality is Walmart doesn't care more about them than the ministry mm-hmm. leader does. But on the other hand, Walmart does require everyone to wear masks. And so there's a sense in which, and that's probably more in their own self-interest, you know, protecting themselves from lawsuits. Um, but there is a perception that often during this time, ministry leaders aren't as worried about your physical well-being or the spread of COVID. I thought, um, you know, the statistics behind or the an, or the analyzed data behind all of this, um, which was based on a survey of Americans from late March of this year, um, it, it it's curious to me, right, that they're they're talking here about a spike in distress among pretty much everybody except for people yeah. who are religiously engaged. Okay, that should say something. To folks about you know the secret of uh, of being content in all circumstances like our you know I, I'm not just a come what may person I mean I am mm-hmm. um, I'm responsible I'm dutiful I mean all of those things but I'm also not a person just prone to hysteria um, and I think that's because you know I'm I'm settled into a God who I know to be good and gracious and who's going to mm-hmm. be Himself no matter what in all circumstances. Yeah, yeah, I was, I'm reminded of, it's a paraphrasing of something Augustine wrote somewhere, right? Um, but I hear it attributed to him, pray like it's up to God and work like it's up to you. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's such a helpful balance that we trust God. Um, that doesn't mean we're careless. We shouldn't be, at least. And I, there have been churches that have been careless with the pandemic, but by and large, that's not the norm. Most churches are doing all that they can, but we don't need to distress the way that someone who believes that this world is all there is. And there's all kinds of things. If this is all there is, then the possibility of the pandemic threatens your entire existence, your purpose, your everything. And for the Christian, we don't want to die. We enjoy life. We enjoy relationships. I think of the country music song, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Well, Mm. Christians don't (laughs) want to die, um, but we know there's something more. And so I think that that the study is interesting because that's exactly what Christians, how they should feel. We should pray like it's up to God, trust him, and then work like it's up to us, knowing that he uses us and we need to be cautious and careful as well. Okay. Also in this week's Weekend World Worldview Reader, you have a book for us and you have a video. Which one do you want to talk about? Let's talk about the uh, the book. Okay. So, so Science um, and the Good, The Tragic Quest for the Foundations of Morality. Yeah, this, you know, some people I follow on Twitter because I like their, their you know, their, their wisdom. And also I am kind of spying into what they're reading. And so mm-hmm. Tim Keller tweeted a picture of this and a couple quotes maybe a month ago. And I immediately thought, okay, I need to have this book. It looks like an important book in a perennial issue, an issue that's just always coming up. And so the issue is, can science um, lead us to moral values? And this is the kind of thing that I'm speaking to often as I have opportunity, and as we all do, are trying to talk about 
um, Christianity. Is Christianity good for the world? Well, it, it offers a objective moral um, framework that can tell us how to live. The question is, can we find that somewhere else? And so in this book, it's two authors. They both teach at the University of Virginia. The book is published through Yale University Press. It was published last year um, in 2020. And they're asking, they're surveying the recent um, kind of trends in literature and in research for trying to find a scientific foundation for morality. And they conclude that the scary thing is that they say that people have, I'll use a quote, um, he says, though they use the language of morality, they embrace a view that in its net effect amounts to moral nihilism. They go on to say that secularism simply cannot bear the weight of the wide-ranging moral burdens of our time. And so it's a great book that illustrates the fact that science can't give us moral values. It could do all kinds of good things. It could even save our lives with, an, you know, with all the medicine and technology that we have. It could save our lives. It, but it can't tell us how to have a life worth living. Okay, if we had any more time, I would ask you to reflect upon um, the fact that the president did not mention God in his National Day of Prayer proclamation, um, and we would be talking about, uh, you know, what is prayer if it is not uh, if it's not prayer mm. calling upon the power of. Uh, of the reality that is absolutely beyond, above, and over us. Um, so mm-hmm. there you go, Dan, a little homework. I've created all kinds yes. of homework for you today. <laughs> Dan DeWitt, thank you so much. Uh, you guys can find him at Cedarville University. It's really easy to find him at theolatte.com. We've been talking today about the Weekend Worldview Reader. We'll be right back. All right. What are you watching? What are you reading? What's the frame or the lens through which you are reading and watching or listening to um, all of those things that media is supplying in our lives? So that's the um, that's the critical mind that Christians need to bring to bear on everything that's out there today. Um, the things that people are putting out there on their blog, on their Twitter feed, over, you know, over the airwaves, um, an intentional choice was made about the content and the presentation of that content. And so we have to be mindful of that and we have to be critical thinkers and we have to recognize um, the context and the uh, the approach that's being taken um, and the worldview, uh, not only of the individual that's presenting the material, but the worldview of whatever the uh, media company is behind that individual. And so let's be thoughtful today. Let's think about what we're thinking about. And let us have the mind of Christ on the matters of the day, presenting him in the world that he so loves in ways that honor Jesus. That's, uh, that's our goal. All right, another hour up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.